Our final episode is going to focus on the end of the Cold War and the process of globalization that followed. Aside from the emergence of a globalized economy and culture, we'll also discuss the issues the world has faced since the 1990s and some of the tragedies and triumphs that have emerged from this most recent period of world history. There are a lot of key concepts that this episode will touch on, so be sure to check out the episode details so you can keep track of what we've covered here today. But without further ado, let's begin. So we'll start our key concept connections here by first touching on the conclusion of the Cold War. And when we last studied the Cold War in terms of U.S.-Soviet relations, we saw tensions at an incredible high, and that was a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis. But continuing on from there, several years later, there began a period known as detente, which was an effort to relax tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. And the most notable product of detente included the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty, also known as SALT, which resulted in a scaling down of both sides' nuclear arsenals. But friendly relations diminished with the beginning of the Soviet-Afghan War in 1979, which saw the Soviet Union attempt and fail at trying to prop up the communist regime that was failing there in Afghanistan. The opponents of the Afghan government were a group known as the Mujahideen, meaning Islamic warriors, who were funded in large part by the United States. And by 1989, the Soviets limped out of Afghanistan and now were forced to confront the growing unrest closer to Moscow. It was also during this time when American President Ronald Reagan dedicated even more money to military spending, which made it pretty much impossible for the Soviets to keep pace with America's military strength. However, the most significant problems facing the Soviet Union were far closer to home. Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev had come to power in 1985 and he inherited an outdated and inefficient economic model that created few goods of value and forced the importation of grain from overseas, ultimately making life difficult on many Soviet citizens. His attempt at economic restructuring, known as perestroika, was complemented by another plan called Glasnost, which encouraged criticism of and openness from the Soviet government so they could work to improve their relations with the people. Now, of course, both plans did ultimately backfire because, as we know, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1989, and this was a result of angering two sides, either the conservatives, who stood to lose too much from these new policies, or it frustrated various ethnic groups within Russia who desired an opportunity to govern themselves within their own independent nation where they could choose the path that best met their particular needs. So beginning in 1989, Gorbachev began to withdraw from the Cold War, and he refused to take military action against countries who would reject communism. Lech Walesa, head of the Nationalist and Working Class Solidarity Party in Poland, was elected president of the government. From there, he began Poland's transition from communism to the free market, and Poland was joined by Bulgaria, Hungary, and Czechoslovakia in its efforts to dismantle its communist past. Romania also broke away from its communist roots, but it required an uprising that ultimately killed the leader of the nation, 
who had previously repressed anti-communists with violent brutality. By November of 1989, the Berlin Wall was opened up, permitting East Germans to move freely into West Berlin and West Germany. Soon enough, it wasn't just the satellite republics breaking away, but it was the minority groups within the Soviet Union that began to separate themselves. The Baltic republics were out as of August 1991, soon followed by other Soviet republics, and by December 25th of 1991, the Soviet Union was no longer in existence. So the end of the Cold War presents itself with a difficult task for the narrative to be presented from here on, because we're no longer talking of a history that exists within the dominant framework of a struggle between the two superpowers of the world. So as we discuss globalization and the problems associated with it, I'll attempt to speak in terms of trends that span across the world due to the innovations in transportation and communications technologies, while also trying to incorporate the different stories of nations that are impacted by globalization, whether it's in a positive or a negative way. So there's a host of debates surrounding the term globalization. I mean, could we not consider the Spanish taking control of Manila Bay in 1571 to be the start of globalization? This did, after all, establish truly global networks of trade. If not, then what about the increased colonization of the world brought about by European nations in the United States in the 19th century? The reason why most don't deem these earlier developments as being part of our globalized history is because globalization represents the increased flow of goods that was brought about by rapid communication and transportation networks and was facilitated by reduced barriers to trade. Long-distance global trade is no longer driven by demands for just luxury goods, but rather all goods are now being exchanged more freely and frequently than ever before in human history. We talk about this process emerging after the Cold War because Eastern Bloc and non-aligned countries became more integrated into the world of free trade than they had been earlier on in the 20th century. So let's begin our discussion of globalization by focusing on the forces that were driving this development and that have continued to drive this development, to be honest. So to begin with, international trade agreements have helped promote increased trade. Principles of free trade have been promoted, meaning national governments were heavily reducing if not eliminating their tariffs on foreign goods. Free trade was increasingly popularized due to the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, known as GATT, which was signed shortly after World War II between members of non-communist states. Eventually, by the early 1990s, GATT transformed into the World Trade Organization, or WTO, which has taken the lead in heavily reducing tariffs throughout the vast majority of the world, and also in resolving trade disputes between member nations. Now, the WTO has not been without its critics, and these critics argue the organization shouldn't just focus its efforts on promoting trade, but also on addressing the social issues, specifically labor exploitation and other inequities that have emerged as a result of the policies that define the WTO. So these global trade agreements have also led to regional agreements as well, and these regional trade agreements have aimed to give collective strength to regions that allows them to compete more effectively on the global market. So the European Union is an example of this type of agreement because it eliminated trade barriers among its members and sought to unify the continent economically, including through the adoption of a common currency, as well as politically in many ways. This organization though has come under increased scrutiny over the past few years as the refugee crisis brought on by conflict primarily in the Middle East has intensified debates relating to how to resolve the crisis. Increasingly, nationalist movements have gained popularity in several countries, with some calling for a withdrawal from the European Union. 
Most notably, the United Kingdom is currently finalizing its plan for exiting the EU, otherwise known as Brexit, after having approved withdrawing itself through a referendum vote back in 2016. What also has been able to promote globalization has been the emergence of larger and larger corporations. And these corporations have been able to take advantage of revolutions in transportation and communication and have gone from being multinational corporations to truly global corporations, contributing even more to a globalized world. Now, these global corporations have a presence throughout the world, and they include companies such as Nike, General Electric, IBM, Nestle, Microsoft, and Shell, among others. What they're able to do is they're able to shift and focus their practices based on the demands of the global economy, and they're typically able to look past issues that are present typically only on a national level. Oftentimes, these corporations move production to where labor costs are the lowest, and these efforts have come at a great cost to local populations who are left behind in their wake. Now, the process of globalization, it must be said, did benefit many national economies throughout the world, and one of the first to benefit was Japan. Japan had been rebuilt after World War II, thanks in part to American financing and military protection but also they possessed a large, educated, and relatively underpaid workforce. And there was an availability of overseas markets that were ready to purchase its cheap manufactured goods. So by the 1980s and 1990s, Japanese industry had become known worldwide for its technological know-how, and its electronics had become internationally regarded as being top of the line. However, its economic growth since the 1990s has leveled off, though it is still the third largest economy in the world today. The economic stagnation of Japan has come in part due to the competition its manufacturers faced from rivals located in the four Asian tigers, those being Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, and Taiwan. These countries also did not have much in the way of raw materials. But they too, like Japan, were able to take advantage of their highly educated and relatively underpaid workforce, and they could import raw materials while exporting consumer electronics that were typically offered at prices lower than those promoted in Japan. Thanks to globalization, these countries were able to experience relative economic success. But as the global economy can bring success, it can bring vast economic inequality and subject nations to the whims of the international markets like never before. Other emerging economies, known as the BRICS, representing Brazil, Russia, India, and China, were transformed, though in an inequitable fashion, by globalization. Brazil and Russia have become significant to the global economy in terms of the raw materials they have to offer. However, inequality has plagued both societies, and it's evident in the favelas, or the slums, of the largest cities in Brazil, as well as with Russia's wealthiest demanding an ever-increasing supply of luxury goods, while rates of poverty and homelessness continued to rise in the early 2000s as international oil prices fell. India has become a massive center for corporate job outsourcing from some of the world's largest tech firms. This has led to India developing a massive middle class while simultaneously continuing to disregard basic needs of its poorest citizens, such as access to clean water and education. Finally, China has come to join the WTO, and it's set to replace the United States as the largest economy in the world within the next decade or even less. It's continuing to expand its investments into Africa and Central Asia, where they are looking to develop a new, quote, Belt and Road Initiative, end quote. That is essentially a Silk Road 
for the 21st century, which will be a focal point for Chinese investment into the region. Now, for as much as the economy of our world has changed, so is the culture of our world. And I just think to the culture that I consume, which is largely defined by the sport of soccer. And if you look at shirts and the stadiums and the events in world soccer, you can see globalization everywhere. Case in point, Manchester United shirt sponsor is currently Chevrolet, an American car manufacturer. My hometown team, the Philadelphia Union, they're sponsored by a company. Now I know that you're going to read their shirts. It's spelled B-I-M-B-O. I promise you it's not pronounced bimbo. It's bimbo. But this is a Mexican multinational company and their headquarters, for the U.S. at least, is in my hometown of Horsham, Pennsylvania. On another note, the sponsors of this year's European Championship, also known as the Champions League, it includes Nissan and Sony of Japan, the Russian oil firm called Gazprom, uh, the American company PepsiCo, Satander Bank of Spain, and the Dutch beer makers Heineken. I've even named my dog Messi after the, the Argentinian soccer player who plays soccer in Spain, and I play Bollywood movies in my class at the end of the year. By the way, if you're not one of my students, and you are taking AP World History, or you're just into movies in general, you should get your teacher to play the movie Lagan or check out the movie of Lagan at the end of the year. It's totally worth it. It is so good. You'll be rooting the whole time. It's spelled L-A-G-A-A-N. Do it. You won't regret it. Um, but let's not forget also that American culture is being exported throughout the world as well. Uh, I could give you the classic examples of McDonald's and Subway and yada, yada, yada. But last night, I watched the Philadelphia 76ers play a playoff game. And the Sixers, who won, thank goodness, had scorers who were born in Cameroon, Australia, Serbia, Turkey, and of course, the United States. So there's endless examples of of globalization in our world today. I mean, think of your favorite musician. Where are they from? Now, if you said the United States, then consider where they're touring or have toured. If you said that your favorite artist is from another country, then think about how you came to learn about them and the processes involved that got their music to your ears. That's globalization. It's everywhere. So for as interesting and as fascinating and as as transformative as globalization can be, it also creates its problems as well. And as the Cold War came to an end, the United States began to cast itself in a position where it aimed to create a more just and secured world. Now, in its efforts as the world's only superpower, the United States created new issues for itself and the world as it sought to find solutions for older problems. So the use of terrorism as a means to a political end had become increasingly popular after World War II due to advanced systems of financing, communication, and transportation that could help facilitate these types of acts. Uh, These groups sought to destabilize or overthrow states through terrorism, and it was seen in conflicts between Palestinians and Israelis, between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, with Basque separatists known as the ETA in Spain, and as well as other parts of the Middle East in response to American interventions. Now, terrorists from the group known as Al-Qaeda hijacked American planes and flew them into both towers of the World Trade Center in New York City, ultimately bringing both buildings down. They also flew into the Pentagon, just outside of Washington, D.C., and a fourth plane was crashed in a field in western Pennsylvania before it was able to reach its intended target of the U.S. Capitol building on September 9, 2001. The leader of al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, 
claimed his organization was responsible for the attacks. And it had also been responsible for attacks on other American targets in Africa and the Middle East in earlier years. Bin Laden was familiar to the American intelligence community as he was part of the Mujahideen who had fought against the Soviets during the Soviet-Afghan War. However, Bin Laden and other groups grew distant from their former American allies as they became angered by American bombings of Iraq, as well as its stationing of troops in Saudi Arabia and American support of Israel. Al-Qaeda formed with the belief that it was executing the will of God in combating American forces who, in their opinion, were engaged in a struggle against Islam. Within a month after 9-11, America was at war with Afghanistan because its government, known as the Taliban, had harbored bin Laden and al-Qaeda and refused to send him to the United States for trial. The Taliban had come to power in the wake of the chaos brought about by the Soviet-Afghan war and had set about creating an Islamic theocracy that severely persecuted anyone who stood in its anti-Western path. Eventually, the Taliban was overthrown and replaced by a new government, but this government has faced continued violence and political instability. Eventually, bin Laden was found in 2011, hiding out in Pakistan, where he was ambushed and killed during a Navy SEAL raid. Iraq had also been targeted by the American government. This had been based on accusations made by President George W. Bush's administration that Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction that could potentially be employed by terrorist groups with an anti-American agenda. Iraq was invaded by American forces in 2003 on the grounds of removing Hussein from power and confiscating his stockpile of WMDs. Saddam Hussein was captured and was executed, but no evidence of WMDs were ever found. The invasion of Iraq drew intense criticism within the United States and around the world. It ended up costing a significant amount in terms of the destruction to Iraq and in terms of money spent by the American government. American forces have since withdrawn from Iraq, but the region has still faced instability in recent years due to the ongoing Sunni-Shia conflict there, as well as the emergence of the so-called Islamic State, also known as ISIS, in the region. Al-Qaeda does still exist today, but recently more international terrorism performed supposedly in the name of Islam has come at the hands of members of the so-called Islamic State. Now, the world has become so increasingly interconnected that it has resulted in other problems that ultimately transcend national boundaries, and therefore, these problems demand global solutions. And I wanted to take time to talk about some of these global problems. But before we do that, let's first talk about some of the successes. Overall, the quality of human life has dramatically improved in the last century, thanks to medical advancements. Antibiotics such as penicillin have helped to check the damage done by bacterial infections. And other antibiotics or practices help destroy diseases that had gripped populations in recent times, such as tuberculosis and cholera. Vaccines for smallpox and polio were developed, and they have altogether eliminated smallpox and destroyed polio completely in all but a few nations. Ebola epidemics have broken out recently in West Africa, but thanks to international efforts, the spread of the disease was kept in check and its spread was relatively limited. However, diseases that have been identified with changing lifestyles, including type 2 diabetes and heart disease, persist. Though individuals with type 2 diabetes can manage their disease with changing diet and exercise habits, as well as through the use of insulin injections, while those with heart disease are able to opt for surgeries, even heart transplants, or use medications that can improve their quality of life. 
Alzheimer's, a disease associated with a longer lifespan, has not found successful treatments or a cure, and efforts are still being made to find a solution to this problem. Now, medical advancements, as well as improvements in the security of the food supply, as we've discussed in earlier episodes, have also led to increasingly larger rates of population growth throughout the world. Our global population in 1950 was approximately 2.5 billion, and as of 2019, our world population stands at 7.53 billion, with the expectation that it will level off at around 9.6 billion by 2050. This tremendous growth rate certainly raises questions about Earth's ability to supply a sufficient amount of resources for its inhabitants. However, the largest issue that has occupied the collective consciousness of the planet is the issue of climate change. Scientists have concluded that the climate of our Earth indicates a warming trend in more recent history, and that humans have contributed to this problem through emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which make it difficult for solar heat to leave, thus incubating our planet in effect. The debate that has captivated our global society has been in regards to how big of an issue climate change is, and what can be done to turn the tide against human contributions to it. More developed nations have called on the BRICS, as we discussed earlier in the episode, to decrease their carbon emissions, as China has replaced the U.S. as the largest contributor. However, the BRICS had been claiming they were doing the same as their counterparts in the West had done just generations earlier when they industrialized. But in 2015, the Paris Climate Agreement was signed by all major contributors of greenhouse gases, as well as most nations of the world, 195 in total. And they pledged to collectively lower their emissions as developed nations would help developing nations in meeting their goals. However, in recent months, President Donald Trump has withdrawn the United States from the agreement, citing his belief that it put the United States at an economic disadvantage. However, this process has not formally begun and will not technically begin until 2020, though smaller efforts are being made to change it. Non-governmental movements have also emerged, which are addressing the problems associated with humans and their environment. America has its Earth Day annually on April 22nd to focus on ways its citizens can help to improve their environment through doing things like planting trees, recycling, and advocating for the protection of their natural surroundings. One organization called Greenpeace is a non-governmental organization that was founded to actively combat issues like deforestation, desertification, global warming, and protecting the biodiversity of the planet. They have been known for their direct style of protests, like sailing to a remote part of Alaska to protest against nuclear testing, or demonstrating against the Russian oil company Gazprom by displaying banners at press conferences of soccer teams they sponsor, with signs that read, show Gazprom the red card. In Kenya, female protesters have organized the Greenbelt Movement, where they planted trees to combat deforestation. They now operate throughout sub-Saharan Africa and continue to advocate empowering local communities and improving the lives of Africans through looking after their environment. Finally, in the second half of the 20th century, we saw one of the greatest issues that have plagued human civilizations throughout history begin to be addressed more directly, and that is the issue of gender equality. In the second half of the 20th century, women began to receive rights in many societies that put them on an increasingly improved, though not equal, level with the men of their society. Women in many developed countries had received the rights to vote in the early 20th century, but they still faced discrimination in many facets of daily life. 
This led to the development of the feminist movement, which sought equality in all aspects of life for women. What came along with this movement was also demands for improved access to birth control measures that would ultimately give women more control over their bodies and thus their futures. Even in communist countries such as China, where Mao claimed, quote, women hold up half the sky, end quote, things were not really happening that were placing women on truly equal footing. And this was evident in the few females occupying positions in high levels of the government, also with pay inequity and the societal preference for male children while the one-child policy was previously being enforced in China. Now, there are still nations where women are not even able to obtain the same level of education as boys. This process is beginning to change throughout the Muslim world, but it remains a problem specifically in South Asia. Literacy rates for women there are low, and they are typically resigned to a work life in the home. However, India has also had a female leader in Indira Gandhi, as have Pakistan and Sri Lanka. There are signs of change for gender rights in South Asia, but there are also still high incidences of violent acts against women. Conditions throughout the world will continue to improve as women are increasingly granted equality with their male counterparts. Birth rates will decline. Women will be placed in positions of authority where their interests can be adequately represented, and a more educated population can work in harmony to create conditions that will ensure health and success for the greatest number of people. So with this episode's complicating the narrative, I wanted to focus on the topic of genocide. And I've spoken of two genocides in previous podcasts, that of the Armenians during the First World War and the Jews during the Second. One of the popular refrains that has come out of the Holocaust was, quote, never again, end quote. This was meant to be a call for action for humankind to avoid the pitfalls of the past and to actively work to ensure atrocities like these never happen again. Yet several genocides have occurred in the 20th century. For instance, Bosnians were victimized by the Serbs as the nation of Yugoslavia broke up in the early 1990s. The Serbs desired to control the regions of Bosnia-Herzegovina and Kosovo and wanted an ethnically pure region. Throughout these wars, an estimated 80,000 Bosnian Muslims were killed in acts of genocide, as were other minority ethnic groups. Now, the killing of the Bosnians also includes the largest mass killing in the town of Srebrenica, that was the largest mass killing to happen in Europe since the Holocaust. Rwanda witnessed a massive genocide that had its roots dating back to its colonial past. Belgian colonial authorities always gave preferential treatment to the minority Tutsis over their Hutu-majority counterparts. And when when Rwanda was freed in 1962, the Hutus took charge and began to discriminate against Tutsis. This led to fractured relations between the groups for decades, which ultimately came to a head in the early 1990s. Negotiations for a shared government fell apart between the Hutus and Tutsis, and the leader of Rwanda, a Hutu, died under mysterious circumstances in an air crash, and fighting broke out between the two groups. This fighting continued on for several months and resulted in the deaths of somewhere between 500,000 and 1 million Rwandans, and most of these were Tutsis who were killed in the process. Most recently, the region of Darfur in the nation of Sudan was the location of another genocide in 2003. The two groups were non-Arab Muslims and Arab Muslims. 
non-Arab rebel groups attempted to rebel against their Arab government. And the Arab government had responded with the use of militant groups that had attacked the non-Arab population, leading to the deaths of approximately 200,000 people and resulting in a massive refugee crisis. In spite of the claim, quote, never again, end quote, we've seen genocides persist. Why has this continued and what can be done? We have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We have the International Criminal Court. We have the United Nations Security Forces. So how can this continue to be? The answer to these questions are complicated, far beyond what I can offer in a brief explanation here. But it stems in part from what we see as a planet of human beings defined as being in our collective self-interest. And that self-interest is often defined in geographically narrow and short-term ways. Europeans and Americans are in part hostile to the prospect of refugees or asylum seekers arriving on their borders. The solutions we often seek are meant to protect our people as opposed to the people. In a way, they are reactive to the problem as opposed to being proactive. We aim for the quick fix rather than taking a long-term assessment of the problem and attempting to support nations in distress in a way that can help them stabilize where they aren't gripped with conflict and an outpouring of refugees. World history is useful in this current climate because it allows us to realize the problems we face are global in scope and enduring in their character. Therefore, the solutions require similar global efforts and investment of time in order for measurable progress to be made. When we fail to think of the history involved in the problems of our current world, we often get swayed by what are short-term and overly simplistic solutions that neglect the larger problems lying at the root. By arming ourselves with history, we arm ourselves with patience, empathy, and most of all, the ability to realize our world does not have to be defined by the incessant tones of urgency that appear within the 24-hour news cycle. Ultimately, I don't have a solution to make never again a reality, but I know it starts with the most important thing you'll learn in a history class, and that's empathy. So this episode's documented focus comes from the economist Joseph Stiglitz, and it's from his book called Globalization and Its Discontents, and it was published in 2003. I'll read you the excerpt. Quote, today globalization is being challenged around the world. There's discontent with globalization, and rightfully so. Globalization can be a force for good. The globalization of ideas about democracy and of civil society have changed the way people think, while global political movements have led to debt relief and the Treaty on Landmines. Globalization has helped hundreds of millions of people attain higher standards of livings, beyond what they or most economists thought imaginable but a short while ago. The globalization of the economy has benefited countries that took advantage of it by seeking new markets for their exports and by welcoming foreign investment. Even so, the countries that have benefited the most have been those that took charge of their own destiny and recognized the role government can play in development rather than relying on the notion of a self-regulated market that would fix its own problems. But for millions of people, globalization has not worked. Many have actually been made worse off, as they have seen their jobs destroyed and their lives become more insecure. They've felt increasingly powerless against forces beyond their control. They have seen their democracies undermined, their cultures eroded. If globalization continues to be conducted in the way that it has been in the past, if we continue to fail to learn from our mistakes, globalization will not only succeed in promoting development, but will continue to create poverty and instability 
Without reform, the backlash that has already started will melt and discontent with globalization will grow. Now Stiglitz is a Columbia University economist who's previously served as the senior vice president and chief economist for the World Bank, and he's also been awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics. Here, Stiglitz is striking a tone of warning in this excerpt, because he sees for all the benefits that have come with globalization, there has been a cost for millions of individuals who've seen their quality of life decline. Stiglitz warns that reforms must be taken to address the issues of inequality, otherwise the world will see an increasing backlash against globalization. He raises fair points that should remind you of all the issues we have discussed in this episode. As nations have economically grown as a result of globalization, global corporations have shifted jobs from country to country in search of the cheapest source of labor. Local cultures are competing against a global culture that is accessible for anyone with a smartphone in their hand. And transportation has made it so that people from throughout the world can move anywhere they'd like with relative ease compared to other eras in history. This all means that our world is changing at a pace that is more rapid than at any other point in human history. If we only look for the negatives in this situation, we fail to comprehend all the power that exists in our shared sense of humanity. But as Stiglitz suggests, if we fail to address the negative aspects of globalization, then we allow for discontent to swirl and potentially cause dramatic problems for our generation or the next to inherit. A nuanced view of globalization requires us to think beyond our own personal lives for the costs and the benefits and rather focus on all who are impacted by these processes. This is a complicated task that requires empathy and an appreciation of understanding consequences in both the short and the long term. And there's no better place to start this inquiry than in studying world history. Now, as we gear up for the AP World History exam, for those of you who are planning to take that in May, I would consider that you give the website Fiveable a look. Fiveable was developed by a former AP World History teacher, and it offers free live stream tutorial sessions on a weekly basis. And it also does feature a pay service called Fiveable Plus that does have some additional study benefits. I can't speak much regarding what the pay service offers. But I do know the free stuff is definitely worth checking out, especially their YouTube videos that cover all of the key concepts. This is not a paid endorsement by any means, because if it were, I'm sure I'd have way more useful things to say anyway. There is a lot to explore on Fiveable, and it is constantly being updated, though. Give the website a look. It's fiveable.me, or check them out on Twitter at Fiveable. That's F-I-V-E-A-B-L-E. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is all for me regarding the content of AP World History. If you've listened to all or most of these, then I thank you so much. I've poured lots of time this school year into this podcast, and but knowing that it's helped you in some way makes me really happy to think about and makes it all worth it. I've enjoyed putting these episodes together throughout the year, and some of the messages that I've received from you with praise and or constructive criticism has always been and will continue to be appreciated. If you're taking the AP exam, I wish you the best of luck. If you just enjoy learning about world history, then you're awesome, because I think understanding this subject is so necessary to helping make our world a better place for current and future generations alike. Much love, everybody. Until next time, take care, everyone.